0: A portion of your purchase will come back to us and help support our shows. So go to fanrolldice.com with the discount code Nightlight to get 10% off of any additions to your dice hoard. Hi, we're here today with Jennifer Baker, author of Expiration Date. And she's also an editor for Electric Literature and creator host of the Minorities in Publishing podcast. How are you today, Jennifer?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm fantastic. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came up with this idea for Expiration Date?
1: So I'm a quote-unquote slow writer in that it takes me a little bit of time to really get from point A to point B and it's part of my meticulous editorial mindset in that regard too. So I always had this flash fiction story with a site that's now defunct called Fiction Femme Fatale, where we wrote pieces that were flash based on an image and one of them was kind of a zombie apocalyptic type story and I wanted to think about language and what happens especially when POCs aren't indigenous and POCs aren't in these stories there are so many other aspects of a kind of dystopia post-apocalyptic world where you're one of a few that aren't being considered. And one of those for me was language. What happens when language becomes eradicated due to famine, due to genocide, due to, you know, our colonial history in the United States? And how come we don't talk more about that in speculative horror spaces? Or maybe the ones that do just never get that visibility that we want to see. So that's kind of where that came from, was just a very POC-oriented story.
0: <laughs> nice. It's a shame that that's a defunct thing now. Like, that sounds really cool.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I didn't, it's just, I love language, so I really wanted to focus on what happens with the loss of language, and if reading more about genocide of Indigenous people, recognizing the consistent thing with cu- the loss of culture when colonialism happens, when famine happens, when plagues happen, you're losing records, you're using archives, you're losing culture, you're losing language.
0: Right. So how long did it take you to write this story? You said you were somewhat of a slow writer, like from, from seeing the picture to final product that you submitted.
1: Three or four years, but that's not consistent writing of that story. That's taking numerous breaks and then seeing it and getting feedback from friends who are Latinx, getting feedback from people I trusted, seeing that it didn't need to be an 8,000 word story. (laughs) It was uh, an effectively short story, going back and forth on how The language worked and what would be said, what wouldn't be said. So, about three years on and off, and then finally bit the bullet and got feedback that from friends who said it feels done. And so, I finally submitted it because I've been sitting on it for a little bit too.
0: So, do you find that that's kind of your process for most of what you write?
1: Unfortunately, yes.
0: In the same way though. Like I need distance from a story before yeah. I, have, I have to come back to it after I've, you know, because I hate everything I write when I first write it. And then I have to put it in a drawer, so to speak, and then wait, you know, several months and then I come back to it, I'm like, oh, this isn't so bad. Do you, do you
1: find that you feel the same way? Yes, because you're like, everything's horrible. Everything, oh, I'm pretty good at this.
0: Right, right. <laughs> it's hard, like you're hypercritical of things when you're actually writing them. And then when you give yourself distance, you can read them more as a reader and not a writer. And you start to see that maybe you can do this after
1: all. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I always say that like, in the revision process with people, when someone turns around edits really quickly and it's been a substantial edit, I don't trust it.
0: Yeah, same. you didn't
1: absorb anything. You didn't absorb, you didn't process, you reacted. And yeah. reacting isn't great in revising.
0: Right. I feel exactly the same way. So if you're listening and you are submitting something to the podcast and I ask for you to revise and resubmit if you send it right away, I, I mean, I'll read it and I'll consider it, but I'm going to be kind of wary of it. Exactly. <laughs> I'm and always wary. to be, but it's like, you know, I want you to think about those things and you know maybe that's just you know me projecting myself on to other writers but I feel like when I get feedback on things I like to sit with that feedback for a while and really think about it and you know one determine is this feedback that I really want to take because a lot of times you know you'll hear from one person oh this story is you know too long and moves too slowly and then someone else will say oh it moves too quickly so obviously they can't both be right yeah and what are they looking for <clears throat> right you have to decide what they're really saying Um, because oftentimes what they're telling you that you need to do or what they're expressing is not really the root of things. You know, they'll say like this ending wasn't that great, but it's not that the ending wasn't great. It's that you didn't lay the groundwork for it in the beginning. So, you know, you you don't touch the ending. The ending's fine. The ending's fine. You just need to revise your beginning. So it's, you know, you've, you've really got to think through those things. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's total editor tacos.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> consider consider so, my words deeply.
0: <laughs> so let's talk about your work as an editor for Electric Literature. First of all, can you tell us all what uh, type of work Electric Literature publishes and a little bit about your role as an editor?
1: So Electric Literature is, that's the umbrella, and it's a nonprofit organization organization. We publish material Monday through Friday, and Electric Literature has separate vertical AKA, what some might think of as imprints. So, you know, a big publishing house has various imprints within a big publisher. Electric literature has various verticals within electric literature. But electric literature proper does nonfiction, and that's essays, interviews, reading lists, analyses, also reporting if people want to do that. But it is centered in the intersections of art and literature. So if you're just going to send me an essay about your mom or your dog or about <laughs> trauma, it needs to be rooted in art. <laughs> it just can't be any type of open-ended essay. So we are specific, but in terms of the other verticals like recommended reading that does fiction and poetry and that's more open-ended, but they kind of like a little bit more weird stuff, things that might not be kind of quote unquote strict, straightforward literary material. That doesn't mean they never publish it, but they kind of like a little oomph to it. And then there's The Commuter, which is more short flash fiction slash nonfiction, and that's more open-ended. But for me, I do mainly nonfiction for them, yeah.
0: Okay, so I know that a lot of our audience is made up of writers, um, and the chance to hear what an editor thinks is, you know, something that even I as a writer, even though I, I edit, I still... I'm all ears when there's an editor speaking, and I'm curious to know what what automatically disqualifies a pitch for you.
1: Oh goodness, so many things. And it's <laughs> really weird because it shouldn't be that many things. What I've so I've worked in the publishing industry and editorial production editorial, which is we are the people who typeset and get your book copy edited and send it to the printer and all that stuff. So, if you find typos that 's usually our department to fix that stuff so i 've always looked at things from a very line oriented content specific space but it what from even the pitch level, before we even get to the material, the pitches are usually not what we do, and that 's the first thing, and it seems very very. Tr- you know, redundant to say, please read the magazine. Please <laughs> read the submission, but oh my goodness, Tanya, <laughs> the amount of time I give people who just said, "I saw you take essays and send me that essay about your dog," and send me that essay about grief, and it's only because they didn't read the page, they didn't read the entirety of the site, which is free and open-ended. We don't have a paywall, yeah. so there's really no you excuse. Get more. There really isn't. If it's a lack of accessibility, totally understand. Please let me know. I want to be cognizant of anything that is not accessible to folks. If it's simply a matter of all I saw was that you were looking for essays and that you pay, I didn't bother to read anything else. And you seem cool on Twitter. That's a problem. Right.
0: Yeah. And that's a lack of
1: attention to
0: detail. <laughs> and I mean, thing like I get so many submissions from like white dudes, especially, um, you know, like, there's been a couple of white women, but white dudes, especially are just like, they just completely ignore like in, in the submission guidelines for nightlight. I say, tell me which of your birth parents is black. Like, that's all you have to tell me like I'm not super picky about anything but so many people do that like I'm not gonna ask and then when I do ask they're like oh I didn't realize and it's like well you know if you're not gonna read the submission guidelines, <laughs> you know like you're wasting my time and yours
1: isn't that so frustrating though so it's because you laid
0: it out you laid yeah. it out for them, and it's <laughs> in bold <laughs> I mean even if you just skim the page it's in bold like come on people but yeah, I mean it's it's either people think that, you know, I I don't think it's always that they don't read the submission guidelines. I think it's sometimes they think that what they've written is so great that you couldn't possibly say no to it even though it doesn't fit whatever the submission guidelines are. So I think there's, you know, a bit of hubris for for some people, for others it's just like I'm just going to send it out, you know, shotgun approach, which isn't going to work for you like you know editors editors aren't going to consider your work if you can't follow basic instructions you know it's even if the essay or the story or you know whatever it is that you're acquiring is good they're still not going to want to work with you because you can't follow basic instructions like when i send you revisions i can't trust that you're going to actually do what i asked you to do um because you've already you've already shown me that you can't follow basic instructions, (laughs) you know, it's, it's my submission guidelines are not that hard. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think yours are either. It just, you know, there needs to be a connection to the arts. That's, that's not something that is difficult. I think to understand, you know, people sending you essays about their dog or whatever, you know, it's, you know, it's just clear that they can't follow instructions. So that's, that's the number one thing that I say to writers is follow, the submission guidelines like read instructions and follow them
1: yeah and listen to us when we say there are people who don't do this so this is yeah. why we keep saying it <laughs> right right it's Which not us like <laughs> it's
0: such a basic thing but i mean it, the number of submissions that we get and i'm sure you get too that just don't follow the basic instructions is with it too damn high the rent's too damn high <laughs> you know it's <laughs> It, it, and that's and that's why we have to keep saying it because people just like i don't i don't know why just like i don't know it baffles me it baffles me i'm a person that like but I do have, you tell I don't them every
1: time years. do you happen to tell them every time so if they did miss that element do you continually ask for that element that was missing or do you at some point just say i'm just not even going to bother this element was missing i said you needed to add this i'm auto reject.
0: Yeah. I would just, I just don't bother. I don't have the time, you know, it, at the beginning of the podcast, you know, w- when, when we didn't get very many submissions, I would work a whole lot more, um, with people who weren't following instructions. And I would tell them like, look, you need, I'm doing this for you. Other people are not going to do this for you. Um, unless it was someone who wasn't black. If, if they if they were black, I gave them the time. If, if they weren't black, you know, I'm like, I need to focus on you know, my mission for this podcast is to help elevate black writers. And I think part of that is educating them on the submissions process. So when I have a new writer that submits something and, you know, they're doing something that wouldn't be accepted if they were working with another publication, I let them know. Um, you know, I kind of look at that as like a teaching opportunity in my way to give back to the community. But there are some writers where, you know, like it's clear that they're being stubborn about this and they just think that their work is worthy and that I don't know what I'm talking about or, you know, whatever the case may be, you know, I, I just, I don't have the time. I don't have the time. I don't have the patience. There are so many other people that I could be helping with that time. And if, if they aren't ready to receive that help, then I don't have time to give them that help.
1: That is more than fair. I'm I'm similar in that way. I give direct feedback and I think people take advantage of that is, Because I'll tell you why your pitch isn't working, why your essay isn't working. But sometimes people have sent me essays within our parameters that were really written in an emotional frenzy and really don't work. And they would tell me, yeah, I wrote this in an hour. And I said, don't tell an editor that. Do not tell an editor. (laughs) FYI's. And I thought you might like it because it was about racism I experienced in a workshop. And I read it, and it, again, it was that kind of frantic, all over the place writing that was unfocused. And I said, okay, so you're kind of taking advantage of the fact that I'm also a person of color, and that I do this, and you waste it, you know, and I got into that kind of um, mom voice. So <laughs> let me get this straight. Let me get this straight. <laughs>
0: right, let me break this down for you. You
1: X, Y, and Z, and, and you thought that this was okay to send me and i said wow okay you're right it wasn't cuz then we have to get into you and i and other editors of color marginalized editors are you taking advantage of us right because we're
0: giving you that right. extra effort because we want to help we can do each this other with someone white yeah exactly I, exactly i feel like there's a lot more work expected of mm-hmm. writers and editors of color and i try to be cognizant of that and try to balance that, you know, I want, I want to help my community, but at the same time I need people not to take advantage of me and like finding that line is hard sometimes still, but, um, I strive. <laughs> to, yeah, to stay you're,
1: completely, you're completely professional. You're an incredibly professional editor. I, I love working with you on this. I, I want to emphasize that, that you've been really great about everything every step of the way. So oh,
0: thank you so much. I appreciate that. So, as an editor, what else is like a complete turnoff for you? Well, we did quick
1: revisions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're quick revisions, not assuming that you know all POCs are going to do everything for all POCs. I think it's also rushing for a rushing for responses. These are things I've I've gotten in the span of a week, and it was wild. One. One and these were all white people and I'm not saying that this is a thing white people do. I think it's a thing novice writers do. Yeah. Because we're in an age where as soon as you get a response for anything, you're just pummeling that person because now you have attention and now you have a name. Yep. One is do not expect me to read something in a day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, whether this is my full-time job or my part-time job, electric literature is a part-time job. Do not expect me to read anything in a day. If I happen to get to something in a day, I happen to, but that is not a default mechanism. <laughs> do not, if I've rejected something, do not beg me to still work with you. Oh my God. If mm. you do X, Y, and Z, even though I said it's not a fit. Right. Do not tell me you're too tired to revise your work. Oh my if goodness. have Yes, I have the proof.
0: Oh my goodness. No one's ever said that one to me. That's, that's a new one for me. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that was new for me too. Uh, Usually people would do, either they do the revisions or they realize it's intense and they just never do them. And then if I check in months later, they say, oh, I'm embarrassed because I realized I wasn't as enthusiastic as this piece. And I did, I felt like I burned a bridge. And that's the thing people do too, is they write like again, these emotionally frenzy-driven pieces, and then submit them, thinking their dream publication or any publication will take it, because there are spaces that take that kind of thing.
0: right and take it without any revisions. They just like write it out, and they're like, "Here you go, yeah." <clears throat> Doesn't work that. Yeah, way. the
1: clickbaity stuff without structuring it, and that's not electric literature because we want evergreen content. It's like, yeah, we want content that's relatable and relevant to today, but we also want that content that you'll come back to in five or six years because. It's never not going to be relevant, the structure of you know, Virginia Woolf's book and how it relates to nature or how a person is dealing with being a person of color teaching in an academic setting or how grief works in books and how that helps someone through pain. Like those kind of well-structured essays, they're evergreen. They're not, oh, flash in the pan. It's you will continually refer to those types of materials. But if you just wrote something in reaction to something and then send it to me and I'm like, okay, well, this needs a lot of work. And then a week later, you're like, yeah, well, the moment has passed. Like the Mary Kondo thing, no one's really talking about that anymore. So I really don't want to revise this piece. And that's a waste of my time to think that this publication, if you have read it, does that type of material. I mean, again, you do publish stuff that's relevant today, tomorrow, whatever but to think that I'm going to do this quick turnaround for a piece that is not strong structurally and that is sometimes way too emotional and not too analytical and not too logistical. I think people think with the digital era because we see this so much, right? And I'm sure you see it too these my boyfriend did this. My girlfriend this is why I don't da, 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 da. this is what happened on new year's eve. And they kind of get these 500 words wrapped up in a tidy bow or not even, they're just kind of, you know, open-ended. And you're just like, what did I get out of this? <laughs> what did I get out
0: And there are publications that do that kind of stuff, but you should know where to send those, where, you know, where not to send them.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So don't do that for me. <laughs> <laughs> you're more than welcome to submit to me. Don't do that though. <laughs> And don't tell me you're too tired to edit something.
0: That's yeah, like that's, that is wild. I cannot imagine. Like, I, that's, that's. Wild. Oh,
1: let me tell you, I was so livid. <laughs> Not only did this author ask me for a quick turnaround because their book was publishing. And so I had a busy week and I said, I will quickly turn around edit. But the moment I did, they said, I will do this in two days. And then they looked at the edits and said, yeah, I'm just too tired. My book is, I've been writing stuff in promotion for my book and I'm just fried. And then I said, yeah, don't waste my time next time. And then they said, actually, what it is, is, is like your edits were really, really good. And it made me realize that maybe I shouldn't be talking about this. So now you're telling me two different things.
0: Right. They, they realized they burned that bridge and they were like, wait, wait, wait,
1: <laughs> Yeah. I think you're digging a hole. You, you have a shovel, literally digging that hole.
0: <laughs> right. Like, don't submit anything that you aren't willing to revise, really, is is the thing. Yeah.
1: yeah. And the fact that at that you rushed me, you know, because they're like, ah, I really want to do this. Right. And then I, I did that work. And again, all these people, white people, and I'm, I'm not saying this is a white people thing, but all these people were also novices. This was something they just wanted to get into a publication that they respected, supposedly, and didn't know how to act and you think that's unprofessional but you don't that's not what we talk about we don't talk about that level of unprofessionalism we talk about the egregious unprofessionalism like oh they cursed at me or they just never submitted their work but no there are these things that add up
0: i mean that's the thing is like people have to look at writing as a job and yes. when they're submitting these things when they're revising revising these things they need to act in a professional Manner. You know, that doesn't mean like you can't say like, hey, Tanya, you know, as your as your intro, like I'm cool with that kind of stuff. Like you don't need to be like ultra formal professional, but there's professional etiquette and professional courtesy that you need to employ just like you would in any other workplace.
1: I, and like you, you become shocked to hear this. And pe- when I tweet about it and I say I'm not tweeting to shame anybody because I don't know that those people who did those things follow me on Twitter or don't. I don't know. It is an instructional tool of these are things that happen. These are things you shouldn't do. And I think you may make light of it because you're too tired. You're not making a dollar per word. You thought your piece was good from the outset. You thought there's just edit all day. And all those are fallacies. (laughs) All those are fallacies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, it's like, even if you think your piece is good, it may require some adjustments to fit for that particular publication. Your piece may be totally fine somewhere else, but if you want to place it here, there might be some adjustments that you have to make. And if you aren't willing to make those adjustments, then you shouldn't even be treading in those waters. And
1: I always say that too. I said, I speak for electric literature in this instance. Another editor may feel
0: differently. So let's go back to you as a writer. Um, So Obviously, as a writer, at least for me, it's been the case where being an editor has changed me as a writer, both on the level of craft and in how I think about submitting my work. How would you say that being an editor has affected you as a writer? Oh,
1: same. Absolutely same because it makes me a lot more meticulous in a lot of ways. My job is to be meticulous. And it's not to say I don't mess up, but not to say every day I'm on point because I may be tired and da-da-da-da, but it always loops back to double-check, triple check, quadruple check, you know, quincouple-check. I mean, the amount of times I check a book before I send it to the printer is a bit ridiculous. <laughs> but it's a service to make sure that my authors are happy. And so when I even pitch... I am so meticulous about, did I spell this person's surname right? Is this the right email? Is this the right publication? Are there typos? Like, copy and paste this into Word, paste it into Gmail, email it to myself to see if the formatting gets messed up. Uh, You know, (laughs) like, did I date it right? Did I do, you know, I'm so meticulous, even in pitching, that it makes me also a little bit too meticulous in the writing. But I'm also attuned to when I feel like, and I don't know if you are too, you know when something's not working. I think even as editors, you're like, okay, this is solid, but something is not working. Something, And I can't, I don't know what it is, but I know something's not working. I know it's not ready to go out there. And I don't think that's a really perfectionist trait. That's just a kind of editorial, maybe sixth sense kind of thing that comes out when you just know you know when it's ready and you know when it's not ready but you can't always articulate why
0: right and the hard part is when you have to give someone revisions and you're like i'm not sure why this isn't working (laughs) like for me that makes me feel like a bit of an imposter sometimes it's like i know this isn't working and i have to figure out why it's not working so that i can give revisions on this but it You know, sometimes it's like, sometimes I'm just like grasping in the dark, you know, it's like, I know this isn't working. I think this might fix it. I hope it fixes it. (laughs) You know, Um, but, you know, even as we don't know, we don't always know. We don't always have the answers.
1: You're not alone. I've talked to literally editorial directors at big five houses, VPs at big five houses. And even after 20 semi years in the business, they have admitted to feeling the same way that they don't always know that they just simply don't always know how to edit this. And then they branch out to their people and say, hey, do you have any feedback? And so people actually recirculate that stuff in-house when you're feeling kind of like, I don't know how to edit it, or I need two weeks. Or if you're wondering why your book editor is taking two months when they said they'd take one month, that's why. <laughs> that's, they may not know how to edit it right now, and they may be inundated with work.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly, so you you're you're definitely you've got a firm foot in the nonfiction and the literary worlds, but this is a horror story, obviously, um, on this podcast. Do you often write horror? Or was this kind of like your first time writing horror, and how did you feel about?
1: it? Yeah, I I've been writing more feminist speculative stuff because I've been reading more of Octavia Butler's collections and her stories. So I've read several of her books, but reading more and more and more, and even developing as an advocate or someone who speaks about advocacy and the lack of representation in publishing for the past four or five years, I've become more tuned to my privilege as a cis-het, able-bodied woman. I've come more attentive to the issues Indigenous people face, trans, the transgender community face, and my, the repercussions of me being part of communities that offend and have cause these offenses to these communities. So my material has been touching more on that, like Leslie Neka Arima's stories have had a speculative, sometimes horror, but more so Afro-futuristic look and how she looks at feminism and power structures. And, you know, Octavia always did that. Tanina reeve its work tends to do that as well and really house black families and stories and their history and trauma into, stories with ghost stories be it sci-fi stories you know fantasy horror and whatnot so looking at more of what other black women were doing and are doing and have been doing and like oh i can do this because i was when i got my mfa and everything it was very literary i'm reading the classics quote-unquote dead white people (laughs) some living white people Dead black people <laughs> on occasion, but no real Latinx people, natives, Asians. And I needed to expand on that, too, and just expand on what was, what other people were doing. Like, Tanana Reeve Dew, I love her work. And I was like, why don't, why isn't her work taught outside of genre? Yes. About, you know what I mean? Like, what is she yes. what doing? Keeps and why work.
0: does she not have, like, film deals like Jordan Peele yet? Like,
1: I have questions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Her her story, like ghost stories. Holy crap! Oh cool. my that god, I Stop love it. that anthology. Love that anthology. So good. One day I'm gonna have a story of hers on the podcast, and yes. I'm putting it into the universe. It's going to happen.
1: <laughs> it will happen. I believe. <laughs> I, I believe. I'm not being facetious. I believe. <laughs> <laughs> Round it out. <laughs>
0: yes. Yes.
1: Yeah. So that's just it's, it's been a slow burn for me. I, I mean. Again, it's the education. I was, I was taught very firmly to write a certain way. And even the story, it has a very literary tone. So it moves slowly in terms of if you expect action to happen on page five, I hope this isn't, you know, <laughs> you know making people be like, ah, no, nah, that's not for me. But, you know, stuff happens, but it is a lot of building the world and building the people.
0: There, there's a lot of dread To it. And I think that's why it works. You know, a lot of times, especially with audio fiction, you want something that is paced quickly and, you know, you're you're jumping right in because people just have less patience because they can't skim when they're listening to a story via audio the way they can, you know, if they're just flipping pages or scanning um, something they're reading online. But the thing that I liked about this story was that, like, the whole time you just feel like this sense of like dread curling inside of you. And That's, that's I have a soft spot for stories like that for one. And then the other thing that drew me to this story was the fact that you had Latinx characters in it. And there hasn't been a lot of representation um, across the board, but there hasn't been any representation of uh, Latinx characters in Nightlight really. And so I wanted, I've been wanting to publish something from that perspective from a long time. And I'm curious to know, because because you yourself are not part of the Latinx community, correct? Nope. So, black, black black. <laughs> <laughs> Blackity, black, black. Black, black,
1: black. Ancestors go back way back.
0: <laughs> right. So obviously you had to reach outside of your community to make sure that you got this right, to, to make sure that you were representing people correctly. Um, can you share with our listeners how you went about doing that and how you felt about sort of I don't want to say stepping outside your lane because I don't know that's necessarily outside of your lane, but stepping outside of your comfort zone, I guess. and, and speaking to another community's experience?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean I'm born and raised in New York, New York City specifically Queens. And I've always been around people of other communities. So I think that's been a benefit to my life in general is that I've always grown up with people who are Black and Latinx and Caribbean and Asian, Pacific Islander. Uh, I I don't know about Indigenous as much. I do have more friends in that community now that I can recognize and that have identified as that. But, you know, in, in that way, it never seemed as though like Latinx culture was, Something that was othered to me. It was different. It's very obviously different, but I think it helps. It doesn't mean that I am the person to write about Latinx experiences forever and ever and ever. I do want to acknowledge my privilege and being a Black American. But because I never, ever, ever saw the community as othered, that helped in terms of building character. And I also wanted to talk about privilege from the inside because Celeste is Black. Right and her assumptions that about language that attributed so i did want to talk about how communities even communities of color can do that and perpetuate that to other communities as well and friends i had three friends who are Next, look at this story one who's puerto rican one who's ecuadorian and one who's dominican and obviously those are two like three different (laughs) communities so I don't want to lump them in but I did want to get different Latinx perspectives of like language for one but also was I being fair and was I picking on tropes was I taking tropes unconsciously because that's the issue when you think you're really aware and when you think you're really forward thinking and progressive that's when you fall into the ultimate trap. And I recognize that as an editor, too. When I'm editing people, I have to think about, okay, you're writing about transgender people, but you're cisgender, and you have all the good intention in the world, but you're misgendering people, you're saying things in a really coded way, you're not recognizing X, Y, Z. But so I have to do that as an editor. I have to do that as a writer. And it, it made, and because I, I had that community, it wasn't as though, Wow, who do I know? It was really, literally like Glenda Can you look at this? Sure. Adria, can you look at this? Sure. but can you look? It? You know, like I had the arsenal at my <laughs> toolbox of people I respect, who I knew would kick my butt if I didn't do it well and didn't do it effectively, and wouldn't sugarcoat it if I didn't. And so that was always the goal. Was like when I came in and, and writing about Pilar and writing about Celeste. Pilar is center stage, and she has a very specific conflict and that's the conflict she's dealing with and that's the world she's dealing with and this is how she's trying to survive and she needs to change by the end and something has to change by the end and that's what I always went in through was the focus and what I noticed as an editor is that when someone's writing outside their identity sometimes their focus is okay Jimmy is black Jimmy is black Jimmy is black and they never forget Jimmy is black they never build who Jimmy is but they just never forget Jimmy is black. And for me, it was Kular with Kular.
0: And they'll give characters like those stereotypical, like if somebody's writing a black character and they are not black, you know, it's, you can always tell, you know, one, because of what you said they're, they're focused on it, but then they also give them these sort of stereotypical characteristics of, you know, what their character character is of a, of a black person. And, you know, for one, like if if you're, if you're writing about someone, like I don't think about every day. Like I don't wake up and go, I'm black. (laughs) You know, it's (laughs) like, I recognize that I am. And, (laughs) you know, but I don't, I don't look in the mirror and think, you know, damn, I'm black today. Like, you know, like I mean someone will remind you at some point during the day. (laughs) Someone always reminds me. (laughs) Exactly. But I don't go around like consciously, (laughs) thinking about that, you know, it's, you know, I'm thinking about how this hair is out of place and it's bothering me. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, it, it, the same things that anybody thinks about, right? Like there, there are different experiences that I have because I'm a black woman, but you know, I don't think about, I don't think about that as something that defines me necessarily. Like they are a part of me. They are a part of my identity, But when I think about what defines me, like what defines me more is that I'm a writer and I love horror. Like that takes up more space in my day and in my brain than being Black does. Yeah.
1: And that's what, if they were writing the story of Tanya, that's what they should focus on, but not ignore your Blackness. And that's what I keep seeing. And I think, again, that's we all have the Opportunities to do that in a work, and I could have very much veered toward that kind of well, bad. They're all immigrants, and they're dealing with you know that documentation and, and like these stereotypical things of what the Latinx community gets exemplified of as of in media and books, rather than just say this is a person really trying to survive an apocalypse.
0: Humanizing those people, you know, like yes, this is part of their identity, but first and foremost they're human, you know, just like, just like anybody else. Like there's a time and a place for stories about, you know, what it is to struggle as a person, as part of a particular community. And, you know, I I don't necessarily want to dismiss that, but we're so much more than that. And I think that when people write outside of their communities, a lot of times they define their character by that community and not by who they are as a person that is affected by what happens to them as a member of their community.
1: Absolutely. Totally agree. (laughs) Cosign. Because Tanya's speaking truth, y'all. So (laughs) listen. Thank you.
0: And by the way, if you're listening and you are part of the Afro Latinx community, I really want more stories written by you guys. So please, please submit them. Please don't self-reject. Um, speaking of podcasts, you're also the creator and host of the Minorities in Publishing podcast. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what your podcast is about, how often you guys publish, all that kind of stuff?
1: Yes, it'll be five years in August.
0: Oh, wow. Yep. Congratulations. Wow.
1: Thank you. It is just me. <laughs> like, <laughs> it started off with me and a former co-worker and now it's it's been just me for most of the podcast, for about four plus years of the podcast. And essentially, when it started, this was around the time of what people call the quote unquote diversity movement, digitally anyway, in publishing, when We Need Diverse Books had the campaign, the hashtag started in 2014, spring 2014. And that around that time, my coworker and I both POCs in publishing, and she's Latinx and me, me being Black. He said, you know what people aren't talking about? People are talking about the lack of books because that's a tangible thing. You can count that. You can kind of get those things. Why aren't we talking about the people in publishing? How many of us are here? Because we've been here for a decade. Where's everybody else? Why aren't we talking about, like, that's part of the problem. You know, if you don't have the POC, the queer, trans, the non-binary, the disabled, editor, and booksellers and salespeople and marketers and publicists, it doesn't really help matters. And so we started a podcast where we talked to publishing professionals, and that also includes authors and illustrators. Uh, But primarily it was really looking at, let's talk to marketers and agents and blah, 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 blah. These people who do this nitty gritty work that we do and talk about what do you do, how long have you been doing it what have been your frustrations experiences positive negative and so for the first year you'll probably notice it's a little bit not preachy but it's more kind of politics <laughs> 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 like, this is the change radicalism and then it became not less about that but it became so much more about well what do you do and what is what does that mean to us and how do we get into this and what are, what are the issues and da-da-da-da-da. So it's never not been about the issues in publishing, but I think the way we worded conversation in the first year was a lot of like, oh my God, can I unload for a minute? And, and now it's been, you can unload, but let's also talk about your work.
0: Right. You had to kind of like get stuff off your chest first and then you can get into. Yeah.
1: Let's talk about issues, but issues about age as well as race, as well as Like gender and all that stuff, because, you know, it it matters and it matters for me to think about that, too. When I have a transgender guest on, a non-binary guest on, a disabled guest on, you know, I'm very open to talking about, wow, I'm ignorant about this. and I appreciate you enlightening me and taking the time to educate us about this and i keep in touch with the guests too because i want to know how they're doing i want to support them in any way possible so it's been a lot it usually was two times a month but because i've been so busy the past year or plus it's been more once a month but it has still existed it is not going away anytime soon I have way too many people in the queue <laughs> and some more authors now so now publishers are on my radar and I keep getting set books so it's like oh wow first world problems I know but it's intense because it was just like oh we're talking to editors and maybe the occasional author and now it's oh my god all these authors want to be on the podcast and I just never really thought of it in that way of oh it's, it's now a publishing tools. and now a publicity tool. Well, really, it was just, oh, this is about information. I didn't think of myself as a publicity tool.
0: So who should definitely be listening to your podcast?
1: Oh, definitely. If you're an aspiring publishing professional or writer, you will hear what a literary agent does. You will hear what an editorial director does. You will hear what marketing is like. Uh, You will hear what my job, production editing, is like. If you're and So I think for writers, it's really helpful to know what people in different areas of publishing do so that when you sell your book, you know, oh, this is what I need, a marketing budget. Oh, the publicist that submits my book for awards. Oh, the literary agent negotiates my contract. Oh, when an editor says this, that's what they mean. And if you're a publishing professional, you can maybe figure out what area is something that you want to be in. Maybe, maybe agenting sounds more interesting than being an acquisitions editor maybe being a publicist sounds more interesting than being a bookseller I don't know like it's all these different
0: things so we'll make sure that we put a link to the podcast in the show notes so I want you guys to definitely check out Jennifer's podcast it sounds amazing I'm definitely going to be I'm going to listen to it as soon as we get off of this call um, Oh!
1: Thank you. no pressure there's like <laughs> almost 90 episodes so
0: <laughs> no excellent. Pressure. I have a lot of cleaning to do <laughs> so tell us a little bit about um podcasting in general like why you decided to start a podcast and what you kind of learned along the way
1: oh gosh i'd be curious to hear what you think about this too but uh, podcasting i didn't know a lot about podcasting up front i just didn't uh and now i do the technical end as well i record i do all that stuff and so it's it's definitely a lot very very interesting and seeing how it's become a specific tool for people to learn more share their work connect with people and i really love the conversations and maybe you, you do choose like don't you like it's actually nice to talk to people and get to know them
0: i have terrible phone anxiety and so like i always dread when really? i talk to people like i i have to just schedule it and say, okay, I'm gonna do this. And I promise myself that I'm not gonna cancel anything unless like, you know, we originally had this um, interview scheduled a couple of days ago, but it was storming here in Austin. So I had to cancel um, because otherwise you would have heard a whole bunch of rain and thunder in the background. And that would have been annoying after a while. Um, So I have to promise myself that I don't, that I won't cancel them unless there's like a legit reason for it. But then like once I talk to people like I'm really excited and I have fun and I enjoy it and when I hang up I'm like, "Oh, I'm glad I did that." But I always dread it right up until the moment where like I actually start talking to people. But it's great meeting people and, you know, hearing different perspectives on things and you know, like honestly, without the anxiety portion of it, this is one of my favorite parts about running this podcast is talking to these different authors and seeing where they are in their careers and uh, learning how we can help them as listeners to their stories and people that enjoy their stories.
1: Yeah. And this is a great podcast.
0: Oh, thank uh, so you. I
1: mean, having the intro portion and the storytelling portion. I mean, it's such a boon to our community. So thank you for it. And it's really You're fun welcome. to listen in on everything and the variety of people you've had. I mean, it's been thank amazing. You. So I'm glad you know you, you get through those conversations. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. It was really, really hard at first. Like it's a lot easier now because I have a system, you know, like I send people the links and they schedule the meetings because if it were up to me to schedule the meetings, I'd be like, I don't feel like doing it on that day. I have some other stuff going on. I don't want to do it that day. And I end up talking myself out of a lot. Things so I send links to the guests and I ask them to pick a time on my calendar that works and it also cuts down on the back and forth of you know does Friday at two o'clock work for you no does Monday at three work for you um, so you know it's it's also helpful to the guests but it really helps me a lot because I don't have to think about it and the less I think about it the less anxious I get about it um, okay. so so that's so that's really nice that's a nice portion of it um so before we go today tell us a little bit about your favorite works of black horror whether it's film or literature um other podcasts that you might know of etc
1: i think i'll just keep referring to to nana reeve do um what was the name of that story um it was it's actually the pen it's actually the titular
0: oh yeah it's i think it's called ghost summer
1: yeah, Go Summer. So the titular story in Tananarive Due's Go Summer is amazing. It is I love, so good. Love the <laughs> layer she packs onto that, and now she's doing, I think, a memoir or nonfiction because her parents were big-time activists. Yeah, yeah So I just really, I'm a big fan of short stories. I mean, I edited a short story anthology, uh, but. Her short story collection, I think, is just really, really good. And I think a lot of people refer to speech sounds by Octavia Butler and how she utilizes the inability to talk to actually move a story and talk about movement and interaction. And if if you're able to actually read one of her newer story collections. It's actually just repackaged. She actually talks about how she wrote each story or where the inspiration came, and that the inspiration for speech sounds came when she was visiting a friend from the hospital on a bus,
0: and she saw two
1: men fighting on the bus, and that's actually how the story starts. It was like two men fighting on the bus, and she just thought, oh, goodness, now two men are... My friend is dying, and I have to deal with two men fighting on the bus, and I just want to get home. And how something so just mundane created such a story that's resonated for years and years and years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. And we never go an episode without talking about Octavia Butler. So I'm glad that you brought up Octavia um, early on. <laughs> <So> <laughs> our, our streak, is alive. Our streak <laughs> is alive. My goal is to talk about Octavia every single interview. <laughs> so thanks for that. Um, Yay! So, last thing, tell us a little bit about where we can get your work, what you have coming up, um, what we can look forward to, what else we can read.
1: I travel often. <laughs> I do a lot of presentations. I mean, I do have a job. And so, really, the best place to find anything is Jennifer, J E N N I F E R N for Nicole Baker, B A K E R.com. I keep everything pretty much updated. You can link out to where you can get the podcast. Uh, my writing, where I'll be event wise, my email, my social media stuff. So I try to keep pretty clean. So that's the best, like one-stop shop. But if you want to see my Twitter rants of what not to do (laughs) as a writer from the editor's perspective, follow me on Twitter at jbakernyc.
0: (laughs) Um, Do you have anything upcoming that we can look forward to reading?
1: Uh, Probably more essays and interviews on electric literature, which post there pretty regularly every month. And the podcast, we have many more episodes to come in terms of celebrating year five.
0: Excellent. So we'll make sure links to all of those are in the show notes so you can visit Jennifer online. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us today. It was a pleasure talking with you um, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you.